Welcome to the Ian Bounsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. Hello. Another installment in the questions series. I've got so many fantastic questions. Here's a load more. But before we go right into them, I want to just discuss a couple of things that have been on my mind um, that you might find interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who uh, is a, a long-time friend of a racing driver called Damon Hill, known him for years. And uh, we were chatting about the similarities between you know, the psychological aspects of music, business, sport, motorsport, you know, because I'm a bit of a sort of like motorsport fan myself. And um, I said I thought Damon Hill was quite remarkable because he kind of like was in an Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher sandwich when he won the world championship in the 90s. And what I found remarkable about him was that he was so comfortable in his own skin that you know, this overwhelming force of nature that was at that time, Michael Schumacher, um, testosterone-driven, you know, ambitious, aggressive, to the point of he would, you know, physically threaten you, you know, when he was in his car. You know, you get those um, amazing characters in sport that are just going to win, come what may, you know, and unbelievably talented as well and uh, tragic what happened to him he's actually I assume not too very far from where I'm sitting now in Switzerland and uh, we all want to see him back um, but what I found remarkable about Damon Hill was where others could you could clearly see the pressure getting to them the, this overwhelming domineering pressure of Michael Schumacher um, you know the point of some of them I'm not you know getting out of the cars in tears he was just controlling the grid somehow Damon Hill managed to um, I wouldn't say float through that would be a wrong way of saying it he managed to go through without seeming to let it get to him he just did what he did drove the race he was going to drive and was himself now why am I talking to you about motorsport well because you can translate those great rivalries in something like that, the, the competitor, into musical terms. And it's not where you think I might be going with this. You know, the big rival, the big competitor for me was always what I had to do. Always what was coming up later in the concert or what was coming up the next day. And even if you can deal with situations like that, it takes away so much energy. You know, because it's always, I'm one of those people who walks around always with what's coming up, what's going to be difficult, what's going to pose potential threat in my mind. And, you know, I guess it's not a bad way to be because it, you're always aware of danger coming your way rather than it's, it's the danger that you don't see that's, that's, that's a, a difficult thing to deal with. But it was just something that I've been thinking about. You know, how do you go through life as a musician neutrally 
you know, rationally dealing with the difficulties, the difficult, difficult concepts, the difficult situations coming up um, without it taking energy away from you because you need all of that energy to focus on doing the job as well as you can. And that's just something that I'm thinking about at the moment, something that I'm working on, trying to apply my own uh, philosophy of, you know, when you go into the practice room, everything else is shut out of your mind and you just dealing purely with what you have to play. So that's just one thing that's on my mind at the moment. And the other thing relates to homeschooling. <laughs> like many people around the world, uh, we're homeschooling, although we were doing that before the pandemic. But I know I have a lot more kindred spirits out there who know how difficult it can be. And uh, there was this... There's so many different ways of going about it, you know, from the strict discipline, following the syllabus, starting at this time and doing this and then doing maths. And then, do, and then there's the free schoolers, which we kind of tend to be, which is, you know, you have to work and you have to do these things, but you can decide when you want to do them and where here and you can't not decide to do it. That's called unschooling, which I very much don't agree with. But anyway, on this home schoolers forum there was this thing about not moving on until you've mastered something and my immediate reaction was well that's nonsense isn't it because I've been practicing the trombone for uh, 50 years hey it's 50 years since I started playing the trombone I've just realized literally just right there and then um, and I haven't mastered it and I've been practicing having a really nice sound all of that time I haven't mastered that or having perfect articulation and like I haven't mastered that. So actually not moving on until you've mastered something is not a very good thing. For me, practice and the way that I teach and the way that I teach when I'm homeschooling is about um, returning, always returning, always return to the scene of the crime. <laughs> so, you know, you go to a place to try and improve mathematics skills or whatever in a time frame where you can focus, try different ways of learning it, and then you leave it, and then you come back, instead of this sort of like crazy banging your head against the wall thing. And I realize that that's been my philosophy of practicing forever. I, I don't know where I got that from, but that's just the way I've always done it, which is I never get too grumpy. No, that's not true, I was gonna say, I never get too grumpy if I can't play something. That's not true. I do have a few bite marks on an old trombone to prove that that's not true. <laughs> uh, but no, I always tend to take the attitude of, right, okay, well, I'm coming back to get you tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after until I get there. And that tends to be, I have to be careful, it's not an excuse for laziness, <laughs> um, but that does tend to be my attitude. Also with teaching, I'm never, I'm always going to say, let's return to this. And in the back of my mind, uh, it's all like, okay, well, we've made some headway on that. I'm going to come back to that in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, maybe or, or in six months when someone develops more, you're dealing with almost a different, a different student in front of you. So then let's try this again. So don't Put too much pressure on yourself to master something. Keep returning. Be persistent. I guess that's what's called, what's called being patient.
Okay, so down to business. Let's bash a couple of these out. Leonardos Leo. We've had quite a lot of contact, haven't we? What are your thoughts on lip buzzing, as in without the mouthpiece? I'm not going to spend much time on this. Um, I think my, I think buzzing on the mouth, uh, without the mouthpiece, so it's called free buzzing, I think, is something that we can do uh, or we can't do. Um, I don't think it helps. I don't do it. Um, I have taught it. Like I always say in all of these podcasts, I've taught everything. But I haven't taught that for a long time. I haven't taught that for 30 years. Um, it's not how we play. And as a matter of fact, when we play on the mouthpiece, when you do mouthpiece buzzing, that's not how we play either. Um, because the sort of relationship between the instrument and, uh, and, and the air is not set up properly. If you're being radical about it, or maybe even not radical in some people's eyes, it's not the lips that vibrate, it's the column of air that vibrates. And you'll find that very clearly if you just do lip buzzing and then put the mouthpiece, put the instrument on your face, you'll hear it sounds terrible. And if you do the same with the mouthpiece, it doesn't sound great. You know, it, the ideal sound that we make is when we through the mouthpiece and then you put the instrument on, then that's kind of like the sound that, that, that we want to get. So um, what are my thoughts on it? Those are the literal physical thoughts. Um, I don't do it. I haven't done it for years. Doesn't mean to say I won't rule it out. Doesn't mean to say I don't suggest it to some students. Sometimes all teaching tools are useful. Um, so... I mean, so Christian Lindbergh, strictly speaking, he's right, you know, about even the mouthpiece, you know. Um, and I say strictly speaking because I do do mouthpiece practice and I do teach mouthpiece practice and it does help and it is a bloody, bloody good teaching tool. And yeah, that, yeah. But if Christian were here now, we'd have a good laugh about it anyway. I, I have had a good laugh with him about it. <laughs> so, so, no, I don't do it. The, the free buzzing. Mouthpiece practice? Yeah, I do. That's where I am on that one. Michael Stanton. When you get to a level of advanced performance, how do you achieve your lucky day during auditions? Michael, you're not suggesting that I've got to where I am in life by being lucky, are you? <laughs> I know what you mean. And actually, you'd be very entitled to say, yes, I did get lucky. I did get very bloody lucky. Yes, and I know it. And I know I'm very, very lucky. I'm very fortunate in every regard. Um, when you get to a level of, of advanced performance, how do you achieve your lucky day? Michael, there's no new stuff on this. You can't have a lucky day. Every day's got to be a lucky day. You've got to play the same way every day. I mean, the luck, the only luck can be that... Um, the people listening to you like what you're doing in an audition. There you maybe have to get lucky uh, because you can't predict somebody else's taste on an audition panel always. So there, maybe you do need to get lucky in that, that regard. I often say to my students, look, you're playing absolutely wonderfully. You're ready to become a professional musician in a professional orchestra. The question now is just to one of finding an orchestra that really appreciates what you do and thinks that you're going to fit in. So that you need a little bit of luck there. If, if um, having a lucky day is um, raising your performance above your normal um, daily level, then um, it probably isn't going to happen in an audition. And so that means you're not ready to do an audition. We shouldn't be getting lucky. The, um, the uh, performance in an audition or in a concert should be a continuation of what you're doing in your practice room. Um, I mean, come on, that old one, I never practice, I only perform. Yeah, sure, exactly. 
um, you should never let your level drop. If, if you need to get locky, go back to your basic technique and work out what you need to do to it to remove the lock from the, uh, from the, from the picture, is what I would say. And um, you've got, you got to remember, Michael, it sounds like I'm being really direct and really sort of almost brutal about this, but I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. Um, I've been through this process so much that I know the feeling of standing in a concert and thinking, whoa, I hope I get lucky here. Um, I'll give you one, one, one example. When I did the first performance of Stargazer with London Symphony, Michael Tilson Thomas, 2005, there was a bit that goes up to a top E flat. And um, I got it right once. It was in the concert. <laughs> I did get lucky. Um, so uh, that's a different thing, though, I think, to what you mean. There is so much. You, you ask, Michael, you ask a really short, short question, and the answer is unbelievably long. And you have to go into so many different aspects of, who knows? I mean, diet, practice routine, routines, dealing with basic issues, um, getting your head straight, preparation, all of that sort of stuff goes in there. So, so I'd, like to I'd like to thank you for your question. Thank you for your point. I'd like you to please take away the word lucky from the way you're viewing that and say when you get to advanced performance, um, well, how do you guarantee things? You guarantee things in the practice room. Okay, so um, we have Tiago Cavallo, I Tiago, Anthony Burra, and Simon Cowan all going down the same kind of route. Um, who am I without my instrument? 15 likes. A lot of people want me to ask this. Um, and people say, yeah, particularly after the pandemic, where people have feel they've lost their identity, you know. Um, I can only give you my personal take on this, um, Simon Cowan. Who are you without your instrument, Simon Cowan? You're an extremely beautiful human being, is who you are. And maybe your mates are going to rib you about me saying that when you're allowed back into the pub with them, but they know it's true, and so do you. And I'm saying that for a reason. Tiago, I'm turning that question around on you. Who am I without my instrument? I have been fortunate to know so many amazing people. And again, I'm going to have to go to a painful place and, you know, try not to cry. You know, it's, eh, I don't know. Maurice Murphy, there's one. Rod Franks. I could go on. All of those who are no longer with us. And uh, so many of them. Jim Watson. Who are they without their instruments? They're wonderful human beings. I miss Maurice Murphy. He was an amazing trumpet player, but he was an amazing person. And that's who I miss. It's not his playing. Um, I'm reminded of the Walt Whitman poem. And in the end, all that remains are personal qualities. And when you reach my age, 
I'm not old, I'm not young, but you've known so many people who are no longer with us. All that remains are who they were, not what they did. And so, Tiago, I turn this around on you. Who am I without my instrument? Ask yourself that. Not as in a label, but what are you as a human being? Who are you as a human being? My life changed when I started trying to be the best human being I could possibly be and not just the best trombone player I could possibly be. And I'm comfortable with the fact that that's what I get out of bed every day trying to be. Try to be the best person, the best human being and I'm trying to develop who, who I am to be, to make the most of this life that I've been given, to contribute. And so I think, Tiago, what we do and who we are are two different things. And this falls in very much with my philosophy of performance or auditions. I've said for years, and students, generations of students will back me up on this, you walk into a room trying to be the best person you can be and you leave that room still trying to be the best person you can be and whatever happens in the meantime is not about you, it's about what happens. It's not, doesn't affect who you are. And it's very easy, certainly over the last year, to feel that the very substance of who we are is under attack. But it's not. It's the very substance of what we do that is under attack. Who we are as human beings is and will always remain. Got a couple of good ones here on uh, one from Eliud Garcia on balancing social life and work and one from Christopher Warren um, about experiences of balancing teaching and performing performing and transitioning between the two um, and also the difficulty of moving to new countries for jobs that arrive arise uh, Christopher I'm not I'm not going to talk about that one because it's about I, I often say that's a podcast in itself that's not that's a novel in itself um, and uh, maybe for another time so balancing social life and work I was going to say well we don't have that problem at the moment because we're not working are we um, but actually, we do have the problem because we are working. Most of us are working from home. I work from home a lot. And we don't really have a social life, but we do. We have the domestic life and we have work and we've got home office and home teaching and practice. All, and it's very easy um, <laughs> to, to completely lose the structure in, in our days. We know that, don't we? A day will drift by. We feel like we haven't done anything, but we've been working all day. Um, social life and work. Eliud, that, uh, that, that depends on the type of person you are. Um, I'm the kind of person who is very comfortable in the um, company of one or two other very close friends. You know, I'm not the kind of... I don't mind going down to the pub and having a laugh, but I'm kind of... I'd much rather go for a walk with a friend or sit down and have a, share a bottle of wine with a friend um, or two friends. Ha! Um... And so that social life, 
it's so difficult for us, isn't it? Because our professional life and our social life is one and the same in the business we're in. <laughs> business. Um, playing, working, free time. We do that with all the same people, don't we? Um, and I guess, Elliot, I'm... I'm really a bad person to to answer this one for you because I've been happy with this with that status quo that my life, my hobby, my love, my passion is all one and the same thing. My colleagues and my friends, um, or my best friends, have been colleagues, and so I'm happy with that. I'm happy immersing in that, and my. My wife often says, you know, why, why don't you go down to the local squash club, you know, and, you know meet, meet some, play some squash, and, you know. And first of all, because I'd have a bloody heart attack. And second, I don't do it because it's like, that'd be, uh, that'd be like mixing with normal people, you know. They're, they're, they're weird. They're normal people. They're not like us. And I guess doing what we do, we have the chance to curate the people who we wish to choose, choose to spend time with if you're saying balancing work and not work Elliot thank you the last year has been very important for this for me um, you have to learn this skill and that is <laughs> um, there was a trumpet player in the London Symphony still alive Malcolm Hall looked like he was off ZZ Top and he was a um, he used to campaign against people who practiced <laughs> he hated practicing he wanted it banned in hotel rooms I think he got it banned in hotel rooms as well and um, he uh, he didn't practice he used to have this he never used to warm up either and he always played well you know that's that's the real rub he always used to play well and he used to say off the face in the case like we've finished work oi we've finished working put it away and you know and but it's it's this thing of I've done my work now. I say to my students, I've got this really basic, basic exercise that I've just done for for them that I'm working like crazy on myself that I'm I've never had such amazing feedback on. And I um and I say, look, you gotta do this 45 minutes a day. And that's it. Any more than that, you're gonna go crazy. And it's like, that's done, I leave it behind me. It's like, I've decided I'm going to do this amount of work today, this amount of practice, and I'm going to put it away. And you put it in the case and you leave it there. You don't walk around with it, carrying it around, because you're going to see, you know, your partner, your kids, your friends. And you don't want to be mired in this sort of like storm of, of you know, storm clouds around your head, like that Peanuts character, you know. Like, you know, you don't want to carry it around with you the whole time. That's no good. And... I think the last year has been really good for this because there's been no sort of nine to five office times or you finish working at this point. And I've really learned to say, okay, for the next 24 hours, I'm not looking at those emails. I'm not dealing with this situation. And I am going to watch Netflix. I am going to listen to my amazing new hi-fi system. Amazing new hi-fi system. Um, so good. I'm actually listening to CDs again. Um, and I'm going to leave it behind me. And it's something that my wife's the same. You know, we're both sort of like these obsessive personalities. And we're like, 
That's it. We're not talking about this now. We're going to leave it as much as we love it. We're going to go and have a laugh. We're going to put some silly music on and open a bottle of wine and, and dance with the kids or whatever, you know? So social life is different for different people, you know? And what I would say to you, I'm going off piste a little bit here, aren't I? Is if there's something that's bothering you, deal with it rationally and then stop talking about it because the more you talk about it, the worse it's going to make it. Um, Christopher, the views on balancing teaching and performing. Yeah, teach. When you first start teaching, I was talking to someone about this the other day. The terrible thing is, if you're a good copier, like I can fit in. One of the things that made me good at playing in orchestras is I can fit in. I can hear what someone's doing and copy it, you know. And what do they call it? Is it is that a minor bird? Like the, it's like a bird that doesn't have its own song. It just copies that of others around, you know. You sing something to it once, it'll sing it. But I, I, I copy other people and I try to blend and fit in. And um, so when I first started teaching, when I was in my 20s, completely out of my depth, someone would turn up and play and have problems. And uh, I'd work really hard with them and then go and play a concert in the night and discover that I'd got their problems. <laughs> like a virus. I'd caught the virus. And <laughs> it takes a long time to de sort of detach yourself from that. And also, I'll tell you another thing as well. I used to teach when I was in London the whole time. I used to teach at the Royal Academy of Music on a Thursday afternoon. It was always a 10 till, a 10 till 1 rehearsal and um, 7.30 concert in the Barbican Centre. So any of you who used to go and listen to the LSO back in those days, the, the, the hooligan, hooligan brass section of the LSO, I used to do my teaching on a Thursday afternoon to save me having to go into London on a free day and travel and all that sort of stuff. So I'd do the rehearsal 10 till 1, and then I'd get on the circle line and go around to the uh, Royal Academy of Music and teach 1.30 to 6.30. I'd do five hours teaching a week, that'd be it. 7.30, so grab a sandwich, quick, into the Barbican Centre. And um, those, those students who I'd seen, 1.30 to, to 6.30, also got on the circle line and got a ticket for the concert. So... Um, you know, having spoken to them all afternoon, they then went to hear how well I got on. <laughs> I used to find that scary. You know, that was one of the biggest pressures that was lifted off me when I went to Vienna was I didn't have a I didn't have a concert hall with loads of my students in there listening to every mistake that I made. <laughs> that was really nice. Um, so so yeah, balancing teaching and performing. Yeah, yeah trans transitioning between the two. Yeah, it's kind of something that you get used to with with time. I think, Christopher, you know, changing hats, seeing seeing them being kind of like the two different things, whilst, on the other hand, applying the same principles to both. Um, my teaching is based now very much on trying to get out of somebody what they have rather than putting it in there, you know? So, so in the same way, what I'm doing is that's more cathartic for me because I'm trying to get the best out of myself. I try to encourage somebody else to get the best out of them. So that is consistent um, between the two. I do need now, I have to say, to leave time between uh, teaching and performing. This, I hate this idea of, you know, would you come and do a master class in a recital? That's a nightmare for me. You know, it's like, what do you want? A recital or a master class? You know, I don't want to do the both. 
or I need a day between them, you know, to, to break up. So I've got my mind in a, in a different place. Um, so it's the transitioning. It's the transitioning that's, that, that's difficult. And also, uh, Christopher, I, I, I don't know, you don't know how old you are, but I guess, you know, if I had my time again, I guess, you know, I'd outlaw being able to get married before the age of 35 and maybe even being allowed to teach until you're 40 because I wasn't solid, I think. I wasn't really secure in myself as a player. I didn't really know myself. So how could I help somebody else find themselves? And I think when you truly become solid within yourself as a person, a musician, a player, transitioning between the two is um, easier. That's what I found anyway. So hope that helps. Okay, big one. Mike Lovett, the great Mike Lovett, has written um, with a question. And uh, Hulken Bjorkman has also uh, chipped in with this question as well. And um, I am constantly surprised at the people who listen to these podcasts and the respect that they show. I mean that quite genuinely. Um, conductors who listen to this. Um, Mike Lovett, the great Mike Lovett, has written to say he'd love to hear my thoughts on compression of air and control of airspeed to change registers and assist in the upper register. Also your thoughts on resonance and more for less money. Efficiency. You always explain everything brilliantly. Oh, I don't know about this one. Mike, yeah, now, you know this is the third in the series. I've been putting this one off. Um, so, Mike, Hulken. My favourite film <coughs> for many years was called Being There. And it starred Peter Sellers, who's done in the 1960s. Long story short, it's about a kid who was raised as an orphan, orphan in a house, in a big house, and never left and was never never went to school and then one day the house was closed had to go out and survive on his own in New York he gets knocked over by some Wall Street hedge fund manager they didn't have them back in those days but that paints the picture for you who's there with his wife gets run over not seriously hurt but he'd never crossed the road he made a mistake and you know the guy gets out of the car and of course you know in, in serious concern of litigation you know his wife says you know, we should take the poor man home, you know, you know, because he says, I'm hungry, could you feed me? And, you know, let's take him home, you know, we don't want him to sue us, kind of thing. So they take him home, and they talk to him, and so he has, enjoys the food, and this guy has no idea, Peter Sellers has no idea about life at all. And um, so the, the banker says, so, what do you know about the economy? He says, oh, oh I, I don't know about that sort of thing. Um, well, what do you think? What do you think of the current president? You know, what, what's he doing about the latest stimulus package? Oh, well, all I know is that um, first you must prepare the ground, and then you sow the seed, and then you water the ground, and then a healthy plant will grow. And then guy goes, "That's brilliant! Absolutely, we need to prepare the ground for the economic recovery that's about to happen." And the guy becomes advisor 
to the highest, highest level. I think even up to the president of the US. <laughs> of course, you have no idea about anything at all. And that's kind of, watch the film. I'm not going to tell you the ending. It's got a great ending. Um, and that's how I feel, Mike, a little bit about that. It's a bit like the, ooh, wouldn't know about that, sir, kind of answer. Um, what I love about this, Mike, when I watch the, the uh, and, and Hulken, I see the people who ask questions and I see the people who give answers on here. I find it fascinating. And all right, down to business. Compression of air and control of airspeed. Yeah, I've taught all of that. I have done it. And as with everything, I try to, and I've, I've tried to use that, compression. Uh, two hernias later, I kind of changed my tack. <laughs> Not kidding either. Um, and compression of air. All right, take a listen to this. If you could see this now. Now, with a breath like that, you can do anything. There's so much pressure of air inside my, my thorax, inside my, my chest cavity, for want of a better description. At that point, I've finished working. That's done. I have the most unbelievable amount and the most unbelievable pressure of air inside my body. I've created that pressure by taking it in. Not by anything physical that I've done to compress the air or to create the pressure. Um, I have a virtual Niagara Falls of air pressure waiting to get out of my body. No, I'm not going to do that on every note, but by and large, I will. Might be slow. Or it might be a... Depending what I have to play. I'm going to get dizzy in a minute. What controls the speed of the air leaving my body is the size of the hole in my embouchure. Now, bear in mind... This is beginner's guide to, and words are useless. So it might only be psychological, but that's how I control. I mean, if I've got, if I've got a small aperture in my embouchure, the air's gonna come flooding out. Now, if it's flooding out in the high register, I'm gonna need a lot of strength. If it's flooding out on a mile of three, something in middle register, I'm gonna get a big, warm, toppy sound. If I've got a small hole, with the weight of the air coming, just sort of piling into the back. I quote Arnold Jacobs, the first point of resistance is directly behind the lips. Gold. You know, and the body is relaxed. I'm not working in my body. I've worked here. That's it. And then I... It's just, the, the air is just coming out. And it will come out, at the speed will depend on the size of the hole in my embouchure for want of a better way of putting it. Um, and 
So that's how I, now what I'm going to do now, Mike, is I'm going to stop this and take, take a breath of air to think about what I've said. Hang on. Yeah, okay. Happy with that, I think. And thoughts on resonance and the more note for less money. Brilliant way of saying it, Mike. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, about that almost traffic jam of air pressure jamming up behind your lips. Now, someone's not going to like what I've said and they're going to write comments on saying, oh, it's pedagogically dangerous and what I say is, go ahead, no problem. It's all imagery anyway, because the bottom line is we've got this image of what we want to do. It's like, uh, it's like you know, if I try and think about the exact size of the aperture and the amount of air that I'm taking and how I'm taking it, and then the coordination of the tongue and the slide, it's beyond my pay grade. I just fall over. I can't do that. Basically, ultimately, it's just about thinking what I want to do. But if we break it down into the smaller things, this thing about resonance and more note for your money is that where it just feels like the air is leaning. Imagine leaning on a wall. You're just like resting, you know, you're resting on the wall. The air is just resting behind your lips. Your body is in neutral. Your abdominals are doing nothing. Your throat's doing nothing. Actually, let's not even mention the throat. I don't like talking about it. Your tongue's doing nothing. The air is leaning against the back of your, your lips. The bigger the hole, the faster the air is going to go through, the smaller the slot. And, that, and when you get that smaller, that's how you get that real really buzzy kind of resonance in there. So that's my, 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 you say I always explain things so brilliantly. I'm not sure I managed that one. That's a tough one. No, um, so I, I think that's, um, that's where I am with that. Now, um, Hogan Bjorkman actually sent me a private message as well. And I'm, I'm not going to divulge too much of the private side of it. Um, but I'd like to go to that now because he's on the same theme. Yeah, so Hogan has written about the um, difference in a, approach on how to make the air inactive but still kind of semi-active between the notes in legato playing um, so i think the pedagogical thing that we're looking at here hoken is this don't stop the air don't stop the air don't stop the air so it's going da 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 it, it can tend to lead to kind of like an unmusical way that you would never sing, you know, if you listen to that, I haven't stopped the air, have I? Listen. Don't stop the air doesn't mean going da 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 you know? We don't always do that. Maybe musically we do want to do that sometimes, but that's not the way we always do it. What I always say, Hogan, is don't stop the air, don't stop the air, don't stop the air direction. Once we've taken that breath, which is why it's linked into the question that Mike asked, is that you, once you've got that direction there, once you've got that direction of air bearing down on you, you know, then we have the direction of air going. What we don't want is this, which is why the fantastic pedagogical statement of don't stop the air was invented. Again, like I always say, I've taught everything and, and, it, and I'm not shooting things like that down, but it's like that fine under, understanding of it. Um, 
using a constant airflow risking to have the poppy sound in legato like going e to f sharp yeah two to five which yeah i okay what i do is um i i on things like that i think it's a bit of an english thing as well is which i think started with the the great john iveson is this i don't know whether he even realized he was doing it you know you could just say well it's like mocking how we'd sing and whatever you do with the air you're going to do that when you play the danger with that is that you're going to bring the uh the, the throat into play which is 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 not desirable what i do do though is i'm aware that i whistle And for any of you tuning in, yeah, your, your abdominals are inactive. When you whistle, you're not using that. That's not happening. So it's like, um, it's like when you have, um, if you use a microscope, you've got like rough and fine tuning. Um, or rough and fine, sorry, rough and fine focus. My dad used to design and make microscopes, so I know them quite well. Um, that was his job. Um, amongst other things. So you've got like two focus things. One is for the rough focus to get you basically, you can see the butterfly's head kind of in, in focus. And then the fine, if you want to really see the fine details in the eye, you've got a little one where you move a lot and the focus doesn't change a lot. And so the big thing is, the, is that sort of normal use of air. And then that kind of whistle is what we have on top of it, which is like giving the elegance to the legato. But that's something that we need to be very careful of because, like I say, it can bring some other things into play that, that you know, it needs to be done. This is a high level of stuff. It needs to be done under the supervision of a, of a um, pedagogical professional, I would say. Um, so, uh, no, Hogan, brilliant question. That's my take on it. I'd be interested to hear what you, you think back to that. Uh, Brad Edwards, somebody else whom I'm deeply honoured, um, who listens to the podcast, has asked something that is kind of related to um, another question. There's one Peter Moore wants to know about Leeds United. Peter, come on, come on, be serious. Just, just for me, hang on. Uh, same with Joe Lessing wants to know about baseball. Right, okay. Um, Brad wants to know about creativity in, the, in, in practicing. And... Um, Brad, yeah, what a brilliant question for you to ask. Um, those of you who don't know Brad's um, books, he is, uh, we have an extremely saturated market out there of flexibilities and goodness knows Bordonis, whatever. And uh, it's very difficult to uh, make your way into an extremely congested um, environment, but Brad has certainly done that. He's, uh, you know, I'm not a big believer in study books or that sort of thing. Um, I believe in making handmade exercises, handmade tools for a job that we need to achieve. Um, but, but a few times over the last year, I've said to students, what is that you're practicing? And it's been one of uh, Brad's ex exercises. I would like to say at this point, I am not being paid by Brad Edwards for anything I'm saying in this podcast. Absolutely not. Um, I'm still... Um, Gordon Edison wanted to know about um, gimmicks and tools in the practice room. 
And I think we know his subject on this because he said to get away from having to work hard. <laughs> okay, so uh, Brad, yeah, um, creativity in the practice room. It's about being engaged, isn't it? It's about not just being a sheep and following the orders of the great master, great master that you are. It's, it's about empowering a student to be able to think things through for themselves, really guiding them in simplicity and flexibility. Um, so, you know, there's, the, there's, the, there's a great, great saying in German that is, was it only an idiot stands on the same rake twice? So if you keep doing, you know, the old Einstein thing, repeating the same thing. So if you keep doing something that's not working, you have to question whether you're doing it in the right way. And sometimes the answer is, yes, you are doing it in the right way, in which case, yeah, okay, keep going. Um, but it's the question. It's asking the question. Um, it's just to get away from this sort of like aimless practice routine of going into a room and playing for six hours and, and not achieving anything. On the other hand, I would say... Brad, I am not into fancy solutions. Most of my solutions are taking things back to the simplest, 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 simplest of forms. Like going... For 45 minutes a day. Um, ask my students, folks. And to do that in a way where the sound is stable to do that in a way where there's no gripping in the sound, in a way that the sound stays open, that the sound is free, that the transfer is not going... So, it, that's, but that's about creativity of thinking rather than creativity. I think, Bradley, I'm sure as a teacher you'll, you'll, you'll agree with this, but create, creativity of approach does not mean playing the next newfangled exercise that's going to fix your problems. Folks, there's only one thing going to fix your problem, and that's patience, um, diligence, and enge eng study speaking German, sorry, eng an engaged brain, and attention to detail in what you do, aiming for perfection, listening to what you're doing. The exercise tends only to be the um, uh, vehicle, for this, if you're if you're not engaged as to how you're doing something, then the exercise, no matter how wonderful Brad's exercises are, they're not going to help you. Um, so I'm going to stop here because my brain's hurting. Okay, my brain's still hurting, but 30 seconds later, I'm back. I think as practices, we have to learn to build our own tools, working out to build our own exercises and etudes. I bet you, Brad, that what's made you as successful as you are is your ability to create your own etudes. I bet you started doing those for yourself, didn't you? Same with Alan Vitsuti, wonderful Alan Vitsuti. said that when he went to Eastman, he was the worst trumpet player there. I find that hard to believe. But he had to build his own tools to make himself better and uh, look at the result. So I think it's breaking things down. What are you having trouble with? The transfer from this register to this way? How are you breathing? How are you thinking? What's the musicality? And I think here's the thing. Here's the thing. Too much, too much approach in a practice room led by a teaching system is based on sweeping problems under the carpet rather than dealing with them, facing them. And in order to deal with problems... Creativity in practice does not mean finding ways of hiding your problems. Creativity 
means finding inventive ways of approaching something that you're finding difficult that's going to get you over a technical hurdle. Now, Brad wrote his own etudes. That's his creativity in practicing. You need to do the same. Brad, that's probably a terrible answer, but I did my best. Now, Gordon Egan, Edi Edison. Gordon Edison, uh, former colleague of mine in the Yorkshire Imperial Band, wants to know about gimmicks, blah, 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 tools. And, yeah, yeah, there isn't a set, any substitute for hard work. And what I've just been talking about with Brad is there. Um, I'm kind of a bit old-fashioned in this regard. Maybe I should get a bit more up-to-date. I, um, I don't like using metronomes too much um, because I think it takes away um, a student's um, natural inbuilt sense of tempo and pulse unless they're used properly. So I think the, the conventional way of using it is just like, put that on in the background, you don't need to think. You know, if you put some space between them, then you need to think. So that. Tuning machine. Yeah, I should probably use one of those myself. <laughs> That's probably my big Achilles heel. My uh, intonation tends to be a matter of negotiation rather too often. Um, and um, so, yes, that... There are these apps out there. Um, there's one of them called, if you bear with me, a student of mine brought it last week. And um, I'm trying not to buy it because I could, uh, I could go down that rabbit hole and never practice anything else for the rest of my life. What's it called? Tonal Energy Tuner. Where you get like a graphic of the, um, like the stocks and shares graphics that I look at the whole time. This, you get this, the graphic of the shape of the note you're playing and then through the middle of it, it tells you whether you're in tune or not. And that's something that I think is useful, but can drive you completely around the twist. Um, so I would use that very sparingly. That's why I haven't downloaded it, because I th I'm such a nerd. I'll probably go into a room playing long notes for the next 20 years and never come out again. Um, <laughs> And so other than that, other gimmicks, breathing bags, no, don't do it. Um, what else is there? I don't know. Host pipes, no, don't do it. Um, I think it comes down to this one question the students ask. Do you have an exercise for that? And my answer very often is, what I've just said to you is the exercise. So, no, I'm not big on practice and gimmicks. Practice mute. That's a gimmick, isn't it? No, don't like them. Uh, I'd rather just practice on the mouthpiece, really, I think, than if I had to use a, a practice mute. I always find the next day after I've... Um, I always find the next day after I've, I've used a practice mute, I can't find the centre of anything. So, no, I, I, I tend not to. Uh, anyway, I appear to have rambled on for 51 minutes. Um, apologies to those I didn't get around to. I'll do another one in a week or so. And apologies to any of you who didn't think I answered your questions adequately. I did my best. Be well, everybody. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me. 
and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff. Thank you.